Darn Children's Church blew up my whole front row. Did you see that? Am I on? Check, hear me. Good, I'm on. I'm good. Forgot to announce earlier, we'd love for you to stick around after service today. We have an in-house photographer here to take pictures with you and your mother and your family, so we wish that you would stay around and be a part of that, Miss Hallie Wilson, uh, and she will do a fabulous job. So if you don't stay, she's going to track you down, and that will be. How many, uh, how many Spider-Man fans do we have in the room? Spider-Man? Spider-Man, okay. Well, not the one small thing. Okay. I'll try, I'll try to be very full and be very uh, technical here with Spider-Man. And what I say, it was the great and the wise Uncle Ben Parker from the famed Spider-Man series who once said these, with great power comes what? Great responsibility. But the truth is that this power didn't originate with the Spider-Man's comic book series. The memorable line, which has also been attributed to the writer Voltaire, came well before Uncle Ben Parker and just slightly after the... That line, in some form or fashion, makes its first appearance during the French Revolution in 1793 among a collection of decrees by the French National Convention. And one possible translation of the decree gives us these words. It says, The people's representatives will reach their destination invested with this confidence and unlimited power. They will show great character. And then notice this line. They must consider... That great responsibility follows inseparably from great power. It's a line that everyone from Winston Churchill to Teddy Roosevelt to even Franklin borrowed in the years following the French Revolution. And truth be told, the idea actually uh, originates well before the French Revolution and is grounded in the Gospels and the words of Jesus in fact, in Luke 12, Jesus is talking to his disciples about being ready for the Lord's return and doing right by the Lord and managing the responsibilities that he has given to us wisely. And in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 through 48, we find these words. And the Lord replied, A faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds that the servant a good job, there will be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all that he owns. But what if the servant thinks, my master won't be back for a while? And he begins beating the other servants, he begins partying, he begins getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected. And he will cut the servant and banish him with the unfaithful. And a servant who knows what the master wants. Is that it? There we go. He's like, he's like, whoa. But isn't prepared and doesn't carry out those instructions, listen to this, will be severely punished. There is a clear idea in scripture that if we know what we should do and we do not do it, it's not a great thing. Uncle Ben was only borrowing from scripture when he spoke the famous words that he did to Peter, Spider-Man. But even Jesus in the Gospels is referring to a foundational truth that's found in the Old Testament as it relates to our responsibility as those who have been graced by good, God's goodness. And can we all say in this room this morning that we feel that in some small or large part we have been graced by God's goodness. Amen. Amen. 
Near the end of the Old Testament in the book of Micah, these words are tucked away as a reminder of our role in carrying out justice in this world. And these are very famous words to some of us who may have grown up in the church. Oh, people, Micah says, the Lord is good, and, what, and this is what he requires of you. And three very simple things that he gives. To do what is right and to walk humbly with your God. If you wrap all of that up and use one word, what he is talking about there is that we seek justice. And that justice is done. And every good Hebrew who would hear those words from Micah would understand where this ethic, where this directed. Because even Micah's words at the end of the Old Testament aren't even the beginning of thinking. You have to go all the way back to the beginning of God's word and you find the starting point for this focus on God's need and God's love and God's desire for justice and generosity. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses 12 through 22. The Lord is talking to the people. In fact, he's making a new copy of the covenant. And he says this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? There's only that you fear the Lord your God and you live in a way that pleases him and you love him and you serve him with all your heart and with all of your soul. Guys, that is all over the Old Testament. That is all over the New Testament. And you must always obey the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Look, the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it all belong to the Lord your God. Yet the Lord chose your ancestors as the objects of his love. And he chose you, their descendants, above all other nations, as is evident today. Therefore, change your hearts and stop being stubborn. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the God, the mighty and awesome God. There's no partiality and he cannot be bribed. He ensures that, and listen to this. This is so very important for where we're going today. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and he gives them food and clothing. So you too must show love to foreigners for guess what? Get this. You yourself were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. You must fear the Lord your God and worship him, and your oaths must be in his name alone. He alone is your God, the only one who is worthy of your praise. The only one who has done these mighty miracles that you have seen with your own eyes. When your aunt went down into Egypt, there were only 70 of them. But now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Guys, a, li a line can be drawn all the way throughout history. A line can be drawn all the way throughout Scripture which captures the responsibility of those who have to care for those who do not have, who are powerless to oppose those who seek to do harm to them. And why is that? Why, why has God drawn that very distinct and very clear line all the way throughout Scripture? I believe that it, at the heart of it, it's because every single one of us, and most importantly, God, craves justice. I mean, do, do not every one of us want things to be right and good and true and whole? And God wants those very same things, too. It's built into each one of us. It's hardwired into each one of us. Guys, when all that we have in life has been gifted to us in the first place by a loving and a generous and a gracious God, we should be willing to freely share that and care for other people. I love statistics, but I don't always use statistics because they can kind of get mind-numbing sometimes. You don't think about them. But if statistics are to be believed at any time in our world, any time even in our own state, and any time in our, our, our injustices that are being committed, 
and not just committed, there are injustices that are being allowed every single day. Sometimes they're even being enabled by the people who should be standing up for those who can't stand for themselves. And this morning, I just want to run through a few statistics and a few what I, I would term kind of core justice issues. Things that I think should smack us in the face every single day, but they don't often do that. And the first one is uh, kind of a combined foster and adoption, foster care and adoption. And I just got to looking this week and I thought, I've, I've never really had and come face to face with foster care the way I have when I come to, came to New Heights. And I've learned a whole lot about foster care and a whole lot about adoption and there's a whole lot more to go. But I just came across an article and it ga- gave some facts and it figures and, it, and, and these are figures that are as of 2016 so I don't have recent, recent statistics but they're, they're close enough for you to get an idea. One is this, the number of children in foster care as of 2016 actually increased by 2.3%. In that year there were 437,465 children put into foster care. Guys, that's close. It's verging on half a million children in this country who are put into foster care. I asked Miranda, she was in the office, I said, can you give me like Indiana statistics? And she said that like as of March of this year, there were nearly 30,000 kids just in Indiana who were in foster care. She said that's more than the state of Arizona. That's more than all of our neighboring states around us, that Indiana is like the epicenter of foster care. What was actually staggering to me as I continued to read this article, it says that in 2016, 92,000 of those kids were removed from their homes due to parental drug abuse. In fact, it says that um, 166,000 kids, or 61%, now this is really where it got mind-boggling for me. 61% of the kids who enter into foster care are there because of some sort of drug abuse or neglect because of drug abuse. 61% of kids who have no cause or no fault in what they're doing but are tossed into a life where they are just batted around over and over again. In fact, uh, there's a figure, I wasn't even going to bring it up, but I remembered it says that the average waiting time for a child in foster care to go in either back to parents or go back, to, go to an adoptive family is 30, 30 plus months. Guys, do the math on that. that is a long time. That is way too long for any kiddo to be separated from a family. And not only is it adoption, but there's something else that's on our doorstep that we often don't pay attention to, and that is the tragedy of human trafficking. Some facts and some figures, at least, and this is crazy, at least 20.9 million adults and children are bought and sold worldwide into commercial sex slavery, forced labor, or bonded labor. About 2 million children are exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. 54% of trafficking victims are trafficked for specifically sexual exploitation. And women and girls make up 96% of the victims of trafficking for sexual exploitation. But it's not just in foster care, it's not just human trafficking and sex trafficking, it's things like poverty. Poverty is right out our back door and in our face at all times. Try to find my, there we go. Nearly half of the world's population, that's more than three billion people live on less than $2.50 a day. More than 1.3 billion people live in extreme poverty, less than $1.25 a day. And then this stat right here just got me. 
One billion children worldwide are living in poverty, and according to UNICEF, 22,000 children die each day. Not each week, not each month, not each year. 22,000 children die every single day due to poverty and to hunger and to scarcity. And there's something like racism that's really hard to quantify. I mean, we don't have statistics for that, but I think any of us would be hard-pressed in this room to look around at our nation today and look at our world today and look at our community today and say, you know what, that doesn't exist. Racism's not a thing. Guys, it is. It's alive and it's well. It's very apparent and it's very prevalent. And these are just a few of the topics among the many justice issues that we should be attuned to in our lives. But the question that we need to ask ourselves, I think, because I think justice gets overused and misused a lot, what in the world is justice? I mean, it's a popular word in our world today, but it's a misunderstood, it's a misapplied word at the same time. Is justice getting what you deserve? I mean, that may be the case in our popular culture. Consider some of the common images that we use for justice. It starts at the very top levels of our government. What do we have? We have the justice department, don't we? And then we have people that carry out that justice. They are known as what? Supreme Court justices. And just because I wanted to be a little fun today and I'm kind of geeky and nerdy, we have the what? The Justice League. Or if you're really old school and that's not really proper, that's the real Justice League right there. Now, what is the bent of of our idea of justice in this world today? I can only think of one word that encapsulates justice for us. Vengeance. To get back at those who have done wrong. Guys, and certainly there is an idea of that, of setting things right in a definition of justice. But it's not all about that. It's like a man named Miroslav Volf. He was a survivor of the oppression and the genocide that happened in Croatia in the early 90s. He said this. He says, when you watch your family and your friends murdered right in front of you, the only way to keep from going insane is to know that there is a God who is angry at what is happening and will one day restore justice, the right order of things. He says, if your God doesn't possess the ability to feel wrath and to take vengeance, Vol says you will seethe with an insatiable desire for vengeance. And then he has this really powerful line. He says, only when you believe that God has the sword in his hand can you lay it down from your own. That's a really interesting definition and idea of justice. And it begins to get to the idea, not just of justice in general, but this idea of biblical justice. What does God say about justice? And certainly biblical justice, God's justice, is concerned with setting things right. But there is an equal focus on acting rightly on behalf of others. Justice is not getting what you deserve or what other people think that you deserve. It's getting what you could never accomplish on your own. I want you to hear that rightly. When you read scripture and you see what God does and how he treats and he acts in people's lives, he gives us everything that we do not deserve and that we could not earn on our own. Yes, God gives the impression and he gives the promise that he will avenge and that he will uphold the rights of the weak and the powerless. But... 
getting and giving God's justice is so much richer than that. Guys, if we, if we think that only God's justice has to do with God being wrathful and God being vengeful and God getting back at people, we miss a huge, huge part of justice. Justice, guys, is more about not getting what we should get through his mercy and getting what we could never get on our own, what could never be ours through God's grace. And when we are not willing, and when we are not willing to act, when we are not willing to see, when we are willing to turn a blind eye and not extend mercy, not extend grace, and seek justice, guys, we are violating a very basic, a very foundational attitude and a characteristic of God. That is what God is at his core, a God of justice. And when we say, yeah, no, no, thanks. I heard those numbers that you read, but I don't know if I really believe them. I don't know if, honestly, I really even care about them. You're violating and you're going against a basic ethic of God. And I think what we have to do, and this is a really tough thing sometimes, is I think that we have to examine our lives for ways in which we are contributing to injustice in our lives. Maybe not purposely, because I don't think there's probably many of us in this room that are like just purposely doing a lot of those things that I just talked about. But I think unintentionally sometimes we do contribute to those things. And instead, I think we need to find ways to show mercy and to show kindness and to show justice as God's called out and holy people. That's what we talked about last time, of God being a holy God. We are called to be a holy people. And when we do not pursue justice, when we do not care for others who have no one to care for them, we are not a called out and holy people. When we're apathetic, when we just don't care, about justice issues, we become blind to the very things that should be striking sadness into the core of who we are. And not only just striking sadness into the core of who we are, but motivating us to action. And in a worst case scenario, we become participators in a way of life that dishonors others, and more importantly, it dishonors the God that we claim to serve and to love and to worship. And that was the case in Amos's day. We began last week talking about this little-known old, little Old Testament prophet, and what we discovered was really very little about the man, Amos. There was literally one verse dedicated in Amos. At the very beginning of Amos, it tells us his biographical details. Instead, what we were able to distill and to pull out last week from the ministry of this man was the power and the holiness of the God that stood behind Amos' message. And in this morning's text, if you want to turn to Amos, we'll be in Amos chapter 2. We're going to get a very clear picture. And in fact, after I read this this morning and I read these verses, if you do not get a very clear idea of what's on God's heart and what's in God's mind and what God really cares about, um, then you might just want to read it again and again. Because it's very crystal clear what is on God's mind and in God's heart. And we're going to start this morning in verse 6 of Amos 2. So this is what the Lord says, the people of Israel, God's special people, God's chosen people, his holy people have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. And listen to what happens here. Listen to what God recognizes the people of Israel are doing. They sell honorable people for silver, and they sell poor people for a pair of sandals. They trample, us, trample helpless people in the dust, and they shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. At their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing, their debtors put up as security. Isn't that, that's low. 
you know what that's saying there in that point? It says that people in power were literally collecting debts and collecting fees and fines from people in the form of clothing, and then they would wear that stuff. And not only would they wear that stuff, they would wear that stuff in the temples and in the shrines where they would go to worship God. That's low. It says in the house of their God, they drink wine bought with unjust fines. And then he shifts gears a little bit, and in verse 9 he says this. But as my people, as Israel watched, I destroyed the Amorites, though they were as tall as cedars and they were as strong as oaks. I destroyed the fruit on their branches and dug out their roots. It was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert uh, for 40 years so that you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and others to be Nazarites, people who were called apart to be holy. Can you deny this, my people, Israel? Ask the Lord. And the process of judgment that Amos lays out is very intentional. If you would go back and you would look at chapter 1 after what we read last week, God begins judgment on Israel's neighbors. And if you were to pull out a map and you were to look at where these cities were located in Amos' day, there is a very, very intentional thing that he is doing, that God is doing in judging the nations. As he begins to judge the nations, he works from the outside in, and he goes in a circular pattern judging all of these nations until the crosshairs are squarely on Israel. I mean, imagine in that day as Amos begins to lay out this judgment and, and Amos begins to check off all of the neighbors, all of the enemy of Israel that are around him, them. And Amos begins to indict these nations. They're your enemies. You are relishing in the fact that they are going to get judged. They are going to get what is coming to them. But then comes the surprise of all surprises when the target is put squarely on Israel's back. And God saves his harshest words for them. And instead of ending his message with the expected promise of victory, because that's usually what God did, right? If we know the rest of the Old Testament, we know our Old Testament history, when the Israelites messed up, they went back to God and they said, God, we are just, we're knuckleheads, we're boneheads, please help us out, rescue us. And God would say, all right, I'm going to step in and rescue you. But it didn't last very long, did it? Because they'd be right back to the same boneheaded things. And this is what happened in Israel's history all the way. And God would, like, it seemed like, if you would read Scripture, God would write in magically and he would rescue them. And so what do they expect at this point as they hear all these nations being judged and it comes to Israel? Israel says, guess what? God's going to rescue us again. God's going to give us blessing. God's going to give us great news. And instead of that expected promise of victory, instead of saying that Israel will be spared and saved by God's strong hand, Amos predicts the unfathomable, the unthinkable, the unparalleled defeat of Israel's army. I mean, this would most likely catch a significant amount of people off guard. It would get their attention. As they, come to, they came to terms with what was previously unimaginable, that God was about to judge the very people that he promised to bless. And do you know what I think happens in our lives sometimes, guys, if not often a lot of times? We're not very different from these Israelites. Because we do the same boneheaded things. We do the same things that really just make God angry. But do you know what God does in his grace and his mercy? He kind of comes to our rescue and says, I'll get you out of it this time. And we think the very same thing the Israelites thought. Yeah, all right, God, get them. 
get all of my enemies, get all those people that have it coming to them, and then just pour blessing out on me. And there's a time in life where God says, you know what, no. You've done enough. You've committed enough injustice in life that I'm not going to put up with this anymore. And I'm going to surrender you over to your own self. And we think, what in the world could prompt such a response from God that he would literally have nothing to do with his chosen people? And it's simply this, guys. It's not rocket science. It's nothing more than this. It's, un- it's injustice. Nothing more, nothing less. That's what finally sets God off. God is a God of justice. He is one who fights for those who can't fight for themselves. In fact, one of, one of the most famous parts of Scripture comes in James. James chapter 1, verse 27. What does he say about being, God being God of justice? He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans, caring for widows in their distress, and refusing to let the world corrupt you. And oh boy, had the world corrupted the Israelites in Amos' day. And here's the thing we need to know, guys. Justice issues are not a them problem. It's so easy to look at justice issues and say, you know what, that's their problem. I mean, they made the decision. They got themselves into that. That's, that's a them problem. That's a someone else problem. Guys, core justice issues are fundamentally a church issue. And they are a church issue because they are the very things that are at the center of God's heart. Orphans and widows and the powerless. But justice was not on the minds of the people of Israel. Amos does not just mention one rebellious act of injustice. I mean, maybe, just maybe, if it was one act, God would have said, you know what, I'm going to spare you again. It was seven that Amos lists off in just these few verses seven times more than any of the judgments of the foreign nations that came before them. And God's contention and his anger rested on a few key abuses. The first thing he talks about is that there was a mistreatment, a gross mistreatment of the poor. Specifically, they were selling them into slavery. Look again at verse 6, the second part of it. It says they are selling honorable people for silver. They're selling poor people for a pair of sandals. The idea here was that people would put up their sandals literally as like that was their collateral. And these people would just hold on to them. And they would, this is what I think when I read all these verses here. I mean, these people that are being abused and oppressed all have their faces in the dust and the ground. And do you know what the Israelites just did? It came and stepped on it and it is grounded in a little bit more. Not only were they mistreating the poor, they were corrupting Worship through injustice and perverseness. Verses, verse 7 talks about it. They trample helpless people in the dust. They shove the oppressed out of the way. And then listen to this, how perverse this is. I mean, this is this basic. Both father and son slept with the same woman. I, I don't know about you, but like that was definitely a no-no in Israelite society. God was very clear about that, that that should not happen. But if you would just look at that verse today, you'd be like, you know what? I think it's a, probably a pretty good idea not to do that. And yet they did it anyways. And not only were they mistreating the poor, not only were they corrupting their worship, but they were abusing their special privileges. They were taking advantage of the poor and the helpless and their lack of standing in society. That's what they talk about 
and Amos talks about in verse 8. There's a common denominator between all the things that Amos talks about in verses. They were. The people, the leaders of Israel were abusing their power. Guys, this is unspeakable for many reasons, but three very basic and primary reasons. First of all, and very basically, many of these acts were actually taking place in very sacred spaces. I mean, it would be like if you read these things here that were going on, these seven unspeakable acts, it'd be like them happening right here in the church. Right out in broad daylight. They really didn't even care. They were just doing it. Spent aside for worship, and it showed how hollow and meaningless their worship had become. And later on in the New Testament, Jesus comes in Mark chapter 12, and he's talking about the Pharisees. He's talking about how fraudulent their worship had become. And in Mark 12, verses 38 through 40, he has these words to say. Jesus also taught, beware of these teachers, these Pharisees, these leaders of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table of the banquets. And then catch this. And yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. And he ends by saying this, because of this, they will be more severely punished. And we look at that and we say, ooh, those dirty Pharisees. Do you you not think that that very stuff is also intended for us? Because I think that sometimes we put on a pretty good show when we come into church, that we certainly care about something, and we're certainly just really super great people. But I think sometimes we come into worship, sometimes we come into this place, and what we do is just kind of a sham. Because at the same time that we are trying to worship God, we are turning a blind eye to all the things that God is calling us to care about. We become our own Pharisees. And I think what happens, guys, when our worship becomes It becomes heartless when it doesn't result in us pursuing justice. Our worship becomes empty when it doesn't result in us pursuing justice. And not only were these acts taking place in sacred spaces, the acts were done in violation of God's instructions to be holy as I am holy. So what the people of Israel were really doing was treating God's name as less than holy. And more importantly, they were serving as a very poor representation of the God that they were supposed to be revealing to the rest of the nations around them. But here is probably what was the sickest thing about what Israel was doing. They they were doing this and they were oppressing their very own people. To pile on the oppression that the poor and the weak and the helpless were experiencing was being carried out by the people who were supposed to be caring for them. The people who were supposed to be leading Israel, the people who were upper-class individuals who should be the most generous. And I, I, I know that this is true in my life, but I think if you're a parent in this room, it's almost a rite of passage that at some point in your life, you say this to your kids. Your kids rebel against you, they act out. They just don't want to do what you say. And what are the words that all of us have probably said in our lives? You know what? I put food in your mouth. I put clothes on your back. I put a roof over your head. Don't lie. We have all said that, right? Or we've all thought it at least, all right? Guess what? I have taken care 
of you. And this is how you repay me. And that's what God does in verses 9 through 11. As he begins to look back to what God did in rescuing the Israelites in Egypt. He uses a phrase over and over again. It was I who did this for you. It was I who helped you when you couldn't help yourself. It was I who was powerful when you were powerless. Amos intensifies the seeing of God's attack against Israel by recounting his gracious provision in Exodus. In the Exodus, in the Passover, and everything associated with that. And I look at that, and this is, a, this is just one book among many prophets who preach the very same message of God's judgment against a people who had lost their way. And I, and I look at Amos, I look at the prophets, I look at so much of the Old Testament, and I think to myself, how in the world could people who had been treated so well treat others so poorly? And what we learn from Amos, and specifically what we've read this morning, as a result of God's judgment on Israel in Amos' day, is quite simply this, guys. All that has been given to us in life is a gift from God, and it should be cared for. It should be stewarded well, and it should not be squandered, and it should be not be taken for granted in our lives. And if you want a really good definition for what justice is, it simply comes down to this. Justice is simply the proper care of things and others that God has gifted to us. Guys, at a very basic level, God has given us. And to do anything else but to care for those around us and care for those who can't speak up for themselves, that's this basic to being people of God. What we have been given should be extended and it should be offered to others. And to not do so is the very definition of injustice. So what in the world this morning do we distill from a centuries-old prophecy about the concept of injustice? And there are three things this morning that I want to end with that I see in what Amos judges Israel for. One is this. Greater revelation means greater accountability. And this is kind of the old, if I didn't know it, then I may not be guilty for it. But guess what? Most of us know it. We know what God asks of us and what God requires of us and what God wants us to do. And so we have a greater, greater accountability for that. We've already mentioned the fact that there is a clear change in tone and the level of accountability and the judgments pronounced against judge, uh, Judah and against the people of Israel. Because both Judah and both Israel are well-versed in the covenant commandments of God. How they ought to act, which in part has to do with how they treat one another and other people. And in judgment against Israel and Judah and Amos too, the anger of God centers around the fact that they should know better. Guys, it doesn't change for us. We should know better. In fact, who knew better than they did as to what God required of them? The leadership of Israel knew exactly what God wanted for them, but they deceptively guided an entire nation in the wrong direction. I seem to remember a pretty hard 
judgment for people who intentionally lead others astray. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, he's specifically talking about, remember he brings a child among the disciples and he says to them, this is how you receive the kingdom of God, by being a child and having a childlike heart. And he's specifically talking about children and what he says in Matthew chapter 18, 6, I think has wider implications. He says this, if you cause one of these little ones who trust in me to fall into sin, catch this, it would be better for you to have a large stone tied around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's harsh. But it's so true. I think every one of us in this room this morning has a great responsibility to care for others around us. And when we lead other people astray and we lead people into sin, we lead people into injustice, into not caring, we have some bad stuff before us at the end. People in power, which I would argue is all of us in this room. People who have privilege, which I would argue is all of us in this room, have an extra layer of responsibility to make sure that things are carried out in the right manner. But as God's people, there is even a greater level of accountability since we have been entrusted, guys, with the greatest privilege anyone could ever be given, to be called children of God. God does not use that title lightly. He doesn't call us children of God as some ho-hum thing. He does it very intentionally. We are not acting like children of God when we just turn a blind. Not only does greater revelation mean greater accountability, but the purpose of God's actions in our life is to spur grace towards others. God's grace towards Israel in the wilderness through feeding them faithfully by defeating their greatest enemies, should have resulted in a response of obedience and gratitude, but it did not. We can see that very clearly in Amos 2. It did not take. But so that we don't get too cocky at our own response to God, we don't fare much better. How often do we complain and gripe and moan? How often do we fail to show mercy and grace and compassion. If a person does not let God's past act of grace guide how they treat others, God's acts of grace to guide their beliefs and actions towards one another, that attitude will guide God's attitude and action towards us. Matthew chapter 18, he goes on this long story that he tells, and I just want to read the very end of it and what he says. Matthew chapter 18. Says, he's telling the story of the unmerciful servant is what he's telling. He says, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. That's what God will do to you if you fail to extend mercy and grace to your brothers and sisters. Guys, grace is not to be wasted. But it's to be given, and it is given by God to motivate a very positive response in us, a response of thankfulness and service to others. We extend mercy, we extend grace to others, we pursue justice, not for justice sake. I want you to hear that this morning because there are a lot of people who want to just pursue justice for justice sake to be a good person, to feel good about themselves. We do not pursue it 
for justice sake, but we do it as a result of what has been given to us by God. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says very simply, but whatever I am now, whatever you are now, whatever you have experienced in your life, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. We are who we are only because of God's pouring out his grace on us. And possibly the most important thing, guys, is that our injustice towards others chips away at God's reputation. Israel's actions in Amos' day had produced a shameful reputation among their neighbors. They were no beacon of light. They were no beacon of hope. God's name was smeared as a result of what Israel had done. And here's the thing, since most people who are far from God only know God through our actions and our behaviors and the lives of those who are supposed to be following God, when we act in ways that are inconsistent with the heart and the carefulness of God, his reputation is on the line, guys. If we don't ever show ourselves to be the people of God, how will others come to know God better? We don't show ourselves to be the people of God. Why would anyone want to know God? I want to end this morning with some words from a very popular commentary aimed directly at the church. And I want you to hear this this morning. It's hard to hear, but it's necessary to hear. This author says the church should be less concerned about its loss of status in influencing the general values of society. They should instead concentrate on getting their own house in order cannot hide in a church bubble. We are called to be a light to the world as Israel was. But we will only do so if we walk in the light of God's ways and his words. Those who ignore or reject what God has made known about his will for humankind will be responsible for their decisions and their behavior. Believers must not make the mistake of the Israelites and misuse their power or privilege, nor should they forget that God has graciously delivered them from slavery and the power of sin. Amos says it in verses 14 through 16 here in chapter 2. The battle will not be won by those who are swift or brave or mighty. The battle belongs to the Lord, and he will not tolerate those who act unjustly. And as God said over and over to the Israelites, I remind every single one of us in this room this morning, remember that you, all of us, were once strangers and foreigners to God separated from God. So my charge this morning, guys, is to love and to pursue mercy and to walk humbly with God. That is what he requires of us. Let's pray.